This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. In 1976, Chris Edwards was kidnapped on Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. But this wasn't an ordinary kidnapping. His father had paid a man named Ted Patrick to save Chris from a cult. From the inside of the darkened Holiday Inn room where he was held, Chris chanted and prayed that Ted Patrick, the man they called Satan Incarnate, wouldn't be able to sway his soul toward the devil. Perhaps he considered the cult's answer to these forced deprogramming sessions, suicide. But when it came time to speak, All Ted Patrick asked of Chris was that he start thinking for himself again, to give him a chance to escape from the doctrine of the Unification Church, the Moonies. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. Today, we're going to continue our deep dive into the cult of the Unification Church, popularly known as the Moonies. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast, and on Twitter as at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. Sun Myung Moon started the Unification Church in Seoul, South Korea in 1954. They were most active in the late 1970s and early 80s, when the Moody's claimed to have up to 3 million disciples in 120 countries. They're best known for their highly developed thought control techniques and the mass marriage ceremonies that couple thousands. Moon died in 2012, and today, Moon's cult has been fractured into several competing sects. Even so, his wife and children continue to recruit members and spread Moon's message around the world from the cult's dual headquarters in South Korea and the United States. In our previous episode, we discussed Reverend Sun Myung Moon and the ways in which he used the Unification Church to gain money and power throughout the world. Today, we'll explore how Moon's ambitions reverberated throughout the entire cult and impacted his followers' day-to-day lives, including how they were recruited into the cult in the first place. According to Moon's theology, referred to inside the cult as the divine principle, All of mankind was corrupted by sin in the Garden of Eden. Adam's fall was caused by Eve being seduced by the archangel Lucifer, who tricked her into having sex because of his jealousy that God gave Eve to Adam instead of to him. 
Moon's teaching described a new world, existing as a unified world civilization, a new world order brought about by a combination of his cult religion and political action. He taught that as time went on, Korea was destined to become the center of the world, and that Korea itself was destined to center on Moon as the Messiah. Since the beginning of Sun Myung Moon's cult, thousands of young people all over the world surrendered their personal freedom and committed their lives to the Unification Church, living and working in severe conditions to raise funds and support the cult. These young adults severed ties with parents and family and gave all their personal possessions, cars, clothes, and life savings to the cult. They lived and worked communally in slave-like conditions, while Moon and his wife and children stayed in opulent mansions on every continent, surrounded by every luxury money could buy. One of Moon's early disciples was a young army officer in the South Korean military when he joined the cult in the 1950s. Lieutenant Colonel Bo Hee Pak was a man with a close relationship to the founding director of the Korean Central Intelligence Agency and advisor to the Korean president. Bo Hee Pak became one of Sun Myung Moon's most trusted confidants and operated as Moon's English translator, essentially trading in his Lieutenant Colonel Army uniform to become a lieutenant in Moon's ranks. Right away, Pak used his military and KCIA connections to arrange lucrative government contracts for Moon. Contracts in arms and chemical manufacturing. Contracts that generated millions of dollars every year for the new church. These government contracts became the financial foundation for Moon's cult, then known as the Holy Spirit Association for the Unification of World Christianity. Using this firm financial foothold, Moon declared it was time to expand the cult's reach beyond Korea, and their next target was the United States of America. If Moon was going to make a triumphant entry into America, he needed to recruit an army, an army of U.S.-based cult members, to work tirelessly toward any goal the cult tasked them with. Recruiting new members was as much about church growth as it was about essentially growing a congregation of members to fundraise and provide free and willing labor for the church. For this to happen, Moon revised his church doctrine so he could enforce his will on cult members without actually being physically present with them at all times. Unification church rituals were heavily rewritten, and in doing so, Moon introduced a family-centered theology to the church for the first time, instructing cult members to refer to the church as the family. To set in motion Moon's plans in the U.S., a small band of church activists was sent to proselytize the West Coast in the 1960s. This initial group put down roots into what were two big college towns at that time, Eugene, Oregon, and Berkeley, California. The written and verbal accounts of current and ex-cult members follow a very specific, predictable pattern. A well-planned, well-practiced set of tactics are consistently applied to each prospective cult member. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Eric Erickson, a German psychoanalyst, wrote that the search for identity is the critical crisis and major preoccupation of youth. For Erickson, identity is, quote, the capacity to see oneself as having continuity and sameness, end quote. So the natural struggle with identity that everyone experiences provided a way for the cult to enter the minds of potential recruits and imprint the identity Moon wanted. Moon also exploited potential followers' youthful idealism. Many of the young people Moon targeted held a strong desire to improve the world, and being involved in a collective moral movement was exciting to them. As we discuss the recruitment process, it's important to note that there are key differences between methods used on the West Coast as opposed to those on the East Coast of the U.S. We'll focus on techniques used on the West Coast. From a psychological perspective, the West Coast recruitment strategy is more subtle, complex, and interesting than the East Coast method. To understand exactly how the Unification Church gathered recruits, let's look at the cult through the eyes of a former Mooney. Rose Johnson, 
had just finished her first year in college when she became one of thousands brought into the Unification Church during the late 1970s. Rose was a self-described small-town girl from the town of Cortland, Kansas, who found herself a long way from home in more ways than one during a trip to California that began with a visit to Fisherman's Wharf in San Francisco. Moody's are taught to engage potential recruits in all types of settings, restaurants, city streets, bus stations, or movie theaters. The initial encounter with a potential convert looks something like this. An extremely friendly, sincere recruiter seeks out a young person and will attempt to engage them, always with the goal of creating a one-on-one conversation. Rose and three of her friends came across a number of interesting characters on the wharf that day. A small boy played drums on a street corner, singers performed along the piers, and artists displayed sophisticated artwork alongside homespun crafts, t-shirts, and jewelry. Booths and vendors all looking for their next sale or donation. One booth in particular drew their attention. A small card table covered with a blue tablecloth with a large sign that read, Creative Community Project. Recruiters and members of the recruitment team do their best to present themselves and the church as mature, vibrant, socially committed people. They're instructed to make every effort to present an attractive, well-scrubbed persona, all in an effort to inspire trust and receptivity in their targets and maximize positive response. In her account, Rose referred to the recruiter behind the Creative Community Project card table that day as Barry. Barry, she said, had closely trimmed brown hair and an impish smile. She described his demeanor and appearance as, quote, irresistible in a cuddly sort of way, like a teddy bear, end quote. Recruiters will often target a member of the opposite sex. The idea here is to add an unspoken but obvious element of sexuality to the interaction and ratchet up the intensity of the experience for the potential convert. Recruiters are specifically taught to avoid overt sexuality and instead pursue a subtle approach. In an interview, one former member recalled that targeting members of the opposite sex, quote, worked better from female to male than the other way around. Ideally, a female recruiter should walk up and put their arm through some guy's arm or grab his hand. Something kind of cute, nothing lurid, end quote. Once Barry established a one-on-one conversation with Rose, he followed a well-scripted playbook to capture and hold her attention. Everything about this initial meeting stage of the recruitment process was designed to get Rose to commit to attend a recruitment meeting known as a dinner meeting. First, recruiters will attempt to create what is called an effective bond with the potential recruit. Next, they identify and exploit any idealistic or redemptive needs of the recruit. Finally, they make careful use of deception, usually falsely representing the church as a front organization. We'll go through these one at a time so you can see how they effectively lured in people like Rose. The first step is building an effective bond Recruiters are taught to search for visual cues like clothing, such as a backpack or t-shirt, or books. The recruiter then pretends to be enthusiastic about that visual cue to start a conversation and create the impression of intense shared interest between the recruiter and the target. One former cult member described this technique by saying, quote, If a person said that he had just got through reading the owner's manual for a 64 Chevy, the recruiter would say, that's fascinating, that's my favorite book, end quote. In Rose's case, during her recruitment in the late 1970s, Barry noticed she wore a tiny silver cross around her neck and asked her questions about her religious beliefs. Barry then agreed with everything Rose said and claimed to share exactly the same religious outlook. Barry's tactic of asking Rose about her cross also allowed him to advance the second step, identifying Rose's idealistic needs. He learned that she came from a Christian religious background and that she was especially interested in the idea of supporting a Christian community. American psychologist Don Byrne observed that expressing shared viewpoints is an extremely effective technique to establish effective bonds between strangers. Byrne noted in his research that there is strong evidence of a connection between attraction to a stranger and the number of attitudes held in common with that stranger. And that brings us to the third step, deception. 
Barry hid his affiliation with the Unification Church behind the banner of Creative Community Project, but he made no mention of either Sun Myung Moon or the Unification Church. Barry also claimed to be fresh out of informational brochures. He apologized to Rose and her friends and instead invited them to have dinner at a house owned by the group so they could hear more about his so-called community project. During the initial encounter, targets receptive to conversation with a recruiter were always invited to a dinner meeting at a house or church center in the neighborhood. That spontaneous invitation was the point of the entire conversation, what all three tactics were designed to facilitate. Unification Church dinner meetings are best described as carefully scripted, deliberately staged, and intentionally designed to be an extremely pleasant experience for potential recruits. Cult members present at the meeting purposely display feelings of friendliness and love toward each other and the potential recruit as a part of a technique called love bombing. Elaine Hatfield, an American social psychologist, wrote that individuals are attracted to and like others who reward them. Love bombing is a technique designed to capitalize on this. Cult members at the dinner meetings heap attention and praise upon their target, intent on making the recruit feel like the most special and loved person on earth. For recruiters, it's all about creating an impression of riveted interest in the potential convert. Recruiters accomplish this by manipulating and focusing the conversation toward discussing the target's favorite topic themselves. At her first dinner meeting, Rose Johnson was impressed by the friendliness and warmth radiated by the Moonies. Before dinner, about 40 cult members held hands and stood in a large circle singing camp songs. After a moment of silent prayer for the food, the circle began to swing their clasped arms in a circular motion and chanted together as a group. Rose was told by church leaders that by performing and repeating other group chants over and over, church members were actively discouraging Satan from attacking them with doubts. In reality, these types of group chants are intended to keep cult members focused on performing tasks together as a group. They're basically employed as a form of distraction. Constant group chanting helps prevent cult members from taking any meaningful time to stop and think about what they're doing. After dinner is the meeting, a more formal affair that includes live music, more group singing, and a peppy lecture. A dinner meeting lecture generally focuses on the idea that the world could potentially be a better place. The tone is upbeat, the delivery is fast and enthusiastic. The content is mostly cliches and platitudes, carefully written so that more or less no one can disagree. Positive reinforcement is offered to potential recruits for behavior and thoughts that conform to Mooney beliefs. Public displays of sadness and disappointment are given for inappropriate responses, such as questioning the group's motives. Rose and her friends looked at each other in surprise when one of the Moonies held out a little basket and asked if they had given a donation yet. After all, the dinner was supposed to be free. The recruiter pressed them again, asking if they could each contribute just one dollar. Rose eventually but reluctantly paid the dollar for her meal and an additional dollar for one of her friends. Asking for payment for what is supposed to be a free meal is a technique Mooney's use to identify individuals who could be receptive to further indoctrination. Cult leaders apply social pressure by putting potential recruits on the spot to see if they'll comply and carefully watch the response that follows. Sun Myung Moon and the Unification Church are intentionally never mentioned during dinner or the meeting afterward. By the late 1970s, Rose and her friends would have heard of them and perhaps been put off from further indoctrination. Instead, at the end of the night, Rose and her friends sat through a 15-minute slide presentation about a growth retreat planned for the upcoming weekend. Images of beautiful mountain scenery and happy faces on campers flashed on screen as attendees participated in volleyball games, lectures, and group meals. Rose was invited to get to know her new friends better and to learn more about the community project by attending the weekend workshop. The Unification Church's next step in the conversion process is the weekend workshop. The cost to participate is extremely low, generally $15 or $20, but the fee is always waived for anyone who can't afford to pay. The cult makes arrangements for every detail of the weekend, 
everything from transportation to housing is planned in advance. The slideshow narrator explained that a bus was ready right now to take them all to the camp immediately after the meeting. This was their chance to get on board. Would anyone like to go? At this point, Rose and the other targeted recruits began to realize that they'd signed up for much more than just a free dinner. We'll return to our story in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to cults. By the late 1970s, the Unification Church had developed sophisticated tactics to recruit young women like Rose Johnson. After an engineered chance meeting, followed by a free dinner where donations were requested, Rose watched from across the room as recruiter Barry spoke intently with two of her friends. She overheard him saying, quote, You may not have a chance like this again. You'll love it. You'll grow so much spiritually. End quote. Rose's friends told him they weren't interested, but this only seemed to encourage Barry. What's the problem, he said. Money? Money's no excuse. We'll work it out. Why don't you stay? Under Barry's aggressive pressure, Rose heard her friend Tanya exclaim, Damn it! Tanya covered her eyes and began to cry. Rose recalled this didn't seem normal for her friend. Rose knew Tanya was tired from the long trip to California and passed it off as such. Then Barry put his arm around Tanya and led her away, constantly talking to her, but now much more gently. Rose couldn't hear what Barry was saying. Reluctant targets were generally further persuaded with promises that the weekend will help them escape day-to-day pressures with plenty of quiet time in a tranquil country setting. The tactic of overloading recruits and forcing a decision during an emotional response is extremely effective. And it's a technique that's applied over and over to targets throughout the conversion process. When Tanya rejoined Rose and their friends, her eyes were red from crying. Although it seemed to Rose that Tanya had things back under control, she was surprised by what Tanya said next. Tanya spoke quietly. Hey guys, I'm thinking of staying for the weekend. What do you think? The camp-like setting of the weekend workshop is designed to completely deny any sense of individual privacy and enhance feelings of disorientation in the potential recruit. The workshops don't have much, if any, quiet time. The attendees' every moment is completely consumed with physical activities, singing, lectures, and small group discussions. The exhaustive schedule gradually wears down the recruits' defenses and prevents any introspection or personal reflection. As Rose climbed onto the bus and found an empty seat, she was immediately joined by a woman named Terry, who she had met briefly before dinner. Rose learned later that Terry had not joined her on the bus that night by chance. Terry was assigned to her by the family, which is what the group now called itself. And during her time at the camp, Terry was Rose's spiritual mother, at her side nearly 24 hours a day. Camp activities are carefully structured, every occurrence orchestrated to reshape a recruit's point of view and bring it in line with the cult's way of looking at the world. To accomplish this, Recruits are moved through the different stages of the indoctrination procedure in a meticulous and deliberate way. It was well after midnight when Rose's bus pulled into camp. Upon arrival, the men were assigned bunks in the main lodge. Women were led to a separate building at the far end of the property. There, Rose was issued a sleeping bag and told by church leadership that women sleep on the floor during their time at Camp K. Rose noted that although the floor was covered body to body with sleeping women, she considered the conditions cramped but tolerable. It's interesting to note that the Unification Church allowed the men to sleep in bunks in a building located close to the entrance of the camp, and the women were essentially forced to hike across the property and then sleep on the floor in cramped conditions. 
In retrospect, this appears to be another subtle form of psychological domination, all the more alarming that this technique was applied to just the women at the camp. Rose was awoken by camp leaders at 8.30 the next morning. Right away, the group was instructed to remain silent until after the morning devotional time. While this obviously was just another method of asserting control over the group, it was explained to the campers that brothers and sisters should not talk to each other until they had talked to the Lord. Next, they were led in silence to a clearing farther down the trail for what was then described as morning exercises. After exercises, the group was silently led back to the main lodge for a Bible reading and devotional time. At the close of the reading, one of the camp leaders lifted the curfew of silence, saying, quote, Now that you have said good morning to God, you may again speak with one another. End quote. Daytime activities at the weekend workshop are generally done as a group. These activities include singing, games like volleyball, and discussions about religion. The intent here is to create and strengthen a bond of togetherness between the participants. And lectures incorporate ideas from Moon's divine principle without mentioning Moon. As the weekend winds down, recruits are actively encouraged to stay on at the camp for the entire next week to continue the workshop experience. By Sunday evening of that late 1970s weekend, Rose had made up her mind. Just after the family leaders announced that anyone who wanted to leave should say their goodbyes, Tanya and Barry appeared from one of the nearby lodge buildings. Tanya wanted to know if Rose was leaving or staying. Rose remembers feeling a panic inside as she told her friend, I'm going to stay for another week. Tanya was thrilled. She had decided to stay too. Rose reminded Tanya that they were expected home. They needed to call their friends and explain. Yeah, I know, Tanya told her. We can do it later. The week-long version of the workshop is essentially the same experience as the weekend workshop, but more intense. Days begin earlier and last longer. The lectures during the week-long workshop also incorporate more teaching from Moon's theology, the divine principle. And at a certain point during the week, it's finally revealed to recruits that the camp is actually owned, operated, and organized by the Unification Church. It was Wednesday, the third day of Rose's week-long workshop. Each morning began the same way. At 7 a.m., two family leaders with guitars sang Red Red Robin. There is a silent rush to the clearing for exercises, a Bible reading and devotional time, breakfast, and then lectures every activity done together as a group. But Wednesday morning's lecture was different. It was a retelling of the fall of Adam and Eve from the book of Genesis, with a few key differences from the story Rose heard growing up. In this version, the archangel Lucifer seduced Eve into having sexual relations with him. According to the lecture, it was this act of sexual sin that resulted in the downfall of the human race. After lunch, a group leader named Nathan pulled Rose aside. He led Rose outside, a few yards away from the lodge. Nathan asked Rose what she thought of the lecture that day. Did she have any questions? Rose confessed that she was a little confused by the story. It was different than the story she grew up with. Nathan smiled knowingly at her and said, I suppose it could be. He paused a moment, then continued, You might be interested to know we share some ideas with Reverend Moon. Rose remembers that Nathan studied her face, looking for a reaction. What? she asked. She was sure she hadn't heard him right. Reverend Moon, he repeated. Sun Myung Moon. Some of his ideas are similar to ours. Seeing the shock in her eyes, he spoke quickly. Before you fly off the handle, let me explain, he said. I said his ideas were like ours, not that they are ours. The key tactic used for conversion during the week-long workshop is to create a state of high emotional tension in the mind of a potential recruit. During this state of high emotional tension, family leaders pressure the recruits to make a full-time commitment to the cult. Those that do not respond to the pressure are strongly encouraged to stay at the camp for an extra week. Rose Johnson wasn't ready to commit to becoming a full member in the Unification Church. And so the cult leaders convinced her to stay at Camp K for a second week-long workshop. On Wednesday of her second week, she had some surprise visitors. 
her two friends, Janet and Linda, who were with her at Fisherman's Wharf just a week and a half earlier, had shown up along with Tanya's father. Janet pulled Rose aside and asked if there was a phone she could use. This was the late 1970s, so no one had a cell phone. Janet said she promised Rose's mother they'd call her together as soon as possible. The phone rang twice before Rose's mom answered. Her voice was shaking as they talked. Rose asked her what was the matter, why was she so upset? Rose's mom explained that she was very worried and that Rose's father and sister were on their way to the camp. They were flying to California from Kansas and were scheduled to arrive at Camp K the next morning. Once a recruit makes a full-time commitment to join the cult, members are told they must leave their old life behind and cut off all ties with friends and family. After all, the parents of church members were only the members' physical parents. Moon and his wife were their true parents, and the cult is their true united family. Church teaching says that members have a divine duty from God to deny their physical parents, brothers, and sisters. They're instructed to hold fast to Father. If their parents attempt to drag them away from the cult, they're taught to stand firm and say, quote, I'm the son of God before being your son, end quote. All ties with spiritual enemies must be severed. And, said Moon, quote, your utmost enemy is in your family, end quote. After a tour of the camp and introductions to her new camp family, Rose promised her father and sister she'd return home to Kansas at the end of the weekend. Their group was going to Berkeley for advanced lectures, and Rose did not want to miss out. When her father and sister went back to their motel, Barry asked Rose to take a walk with him down to the nearby river. He told her he wasn't convinced her reasons for leaving were valid, and he didn't think Rose was convinced either. Barry told Rose, quote, Once you leave this place, it isn't easy to come back, end quote. He went on to say that he left the family once, just like she planned to do. He was home for two weeks. During that time, strange things happened. His friends ignored him, his father died, and his house burned down. He told her, quote, I'm not trying to scare you, but don't underestimate Satan's power, end quote. After their talk, Rose made a commitment to stay with the family for the next 40 days. She just needed to figure out how to tell her friends and family she wouldn't be coming home. According to camp leaders, the 40-day commitment is seen as a special step in the growth of a family member. Rose was told that many family members see it as their rebirth as a whole new person. It was 11 o'clock that night when Rose decided to make the call home to tell her parents she was staying at Camp K. She didn't want to do it alone, so she asked Barry to come with her. As they walked to the telephone room, Barry made Rose promise to limit her phone call to 10 minutes, not a minute longer. Barry told her Satan will do anything to prevent her from joining the family. And if she talked too long, her family would only confuse her. They prayed, did a choo-choo, and then she picked up the phone and dialed. When Rose's sister answered, she spoke quietly to soften the blow. Quote, I've decided to make a 40-day commitment, end quote. A recruit who has made a 40-day commitment is considered a full-time member in the church. Full-time members are expected to live pure lives. Alcohol and drugs are forbidden, and sex outside marriage is considered to be the worst possible sin. But when Rose told this to her family, Barry, who was listening in, was horror-struck. As Rose recalled, he moaned, don't tell her about the 40 days. However, Barry didn't need to worry. Rose's family was unable to convince her to change her mind. She was committed to the church, at least for the next 40 days. The same night as her call home, Rose was immediately transferred from Camp K to a house in Berkeley on Hearst Street. That was where the cult provided second-level training. In the late 1970s, this training program was referred to inside the church as the Danamite Program named for the original training location on Dana Street in San Francisco. Day-to-day, full-time members live together in large houses owned by the cult. Although ownership is generally not public knowledge, if asked, cult members usually say the house is owned by a front organization like the Creative Community Project. 
Interesting to note that an organization that outwardly decries the evil of communism forces its members to live in what are essentially communes. Living conditions for full-time members are tough. Members generally eat a low-protein diet of rice and vegetables. They also frequently take part in something called spiritual fasting. They do this in order to donate what little money they receive back to the church instead of spending it on food. Former cult member Shelley Turrer recalled that she and other women often missed their periods for months at a time. Cult leaders told her this was fine. It meant she was pregnant with God. Those that escaped the cult often dealt with persistent health problems for years after leaving. Rose's first day at the Danamite program brought with it three major adjustments to her day-to-day living. First, each day now began at 5.45. Full-time members didn't get much sleep. They often developed a glazed look, referred to inside the church as zombie eyes. Church leaders explained this faraway look as a sign of deep spirituality, a physical sign that proved a member's unity with true father. Rose's second major adjustment was the style of dress. Full-time members were expected to dress in a way that would not embarrass their heavenly father. Men were provided slacks, collared shirts, and neckties, and each of the women were given a dress to wear. Rose's dress was deemed to have a neckline that was not modest enough for the heavenly father, and so she was given a turtleneck shirt to wear underneath. The third adjustment came after the morning exercise and Bible reading. There would be no breakfast from now on. Instead, Danamites were only allowed liquids until noon. In Rose's case, this meant only orange juice or water. Church leaders explained that Reverend Moon survived on less than a handful of rice a day during his persecution in a North Korean prison camp. By missing a meal, they shared Moon's spirit of devotion to their Heavenly Father. Moon not only used his power over cult members to control their every move, he also used his cult members to increase his bank accounts. One former Mooney estimated that 1,000 cult members collecting $75 per day per person provided the church an annual gross of about $28 million. These are conservative estimates, since cult members were expected to fundraise a minimum of $100 per person per day. And Moon demanded that as much as one-third of cult members be out fundraising at all times. Rose was told that training in the Danamite program usually takes three weeks to complete. Training included more lectures, specifically more teaching from the divine principle, and she was told, quote, great chances to serve the Heavenly Father, end quote. She could expect to help out with renovation work on another house in the area and plenty of witnessing and fundraising. Fundraising meant piling into a church van and heading to downtown San Francisco to sell flowers. Cult leaders explained that most people live under Satan's influence. By convincing them to give the church money for flowers, those people were allowed to earn Heavenly Father's blessing. Each member of the sales team was expected to meet a daily sales goal. First-timers, like Rose, were assigned a goal of $60. More experienced fundraisers were expected to pull in at least $100 each day. Some sales teams were not allowed to sleep or return home until their sales goals were met. At the end of their first day, Rose counted out $61, one dollar more than her goal. Today, that $61 from the late 1970s would be around $250. That night, Rose watched a film of Reverend Moon conducting the most famous and strange ritual of the Unification Church, the Mass Marriage Ceremony. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, let's continue the story. The most sacred and famous ritual in the Unification Church is formally known as the Holy Marriage Blessing Ceremony. First held in 1961, the blessing was originally given to either married or engaged couples who were members of the Unification Church. Today, the blessing is given to anyone of any faith willing to make a pledge of devotion to a spouse. Unmarried family members had their mates personally selected for them by Sun Myung Moon himself. 
considered a great honor inside the church. Family members were only eligible for marriage if they had brought in at least 12 people into the group. Moon placed a heavy emphasis on cross-cultural interracial pairings. This reflected his espoused belief that humanity needed to be united into one race, one religion, and one government ruled by Moon. To be matched in North America usually meant that members traveled to the church-owned New Yorker Hotel in New York City. At the hotel, men and women entered a large room together, with the men on one side and the women on the other. Moon matched the couples by pointing at them. Originally from Calgary, Canada, Gordon Neufeld was living in Los Angeles when he traveled to New York to be matched in 1980. Moon paired him with an English woman who lived in the United Kingdom. Gordon said, quote, In theory, we were supposed to write each other and not worry about trying to visit each other. End quote. Church rules required them to live apart during their engagement until Moon declared them ready to receive the blessing. Neufeld said that they liked each other, but that she had trouble living apart from him. When Moon finally announced he would wed the couple in 1982, they had lived apart for nearly two years. Gordon remembered, quote, As we walked over the dais, there was Reverend Moon on one side and his wife, Hak Jahan, on the other. They were splashing holy water on the couples. It was supposed to be some kind of blessing, end quote. Kara Jones was 20 years old in 1995 when she married the first man she'd ever held hands with. In her case, Sun Myung Moon matched them just a month before their wedding day. Kara's parents were college-educated professionals who had joined the church in their mid-20s. Earlier that year, Kara submitted 8 by 10 photos to the church of herself wearing her high school graduation dress. As she put the pictures in the mail, she said a silent prayer that Reverend Moon would find her a good husband. Late one night, while working at a San Francisco church center, she got a call from her parents. Kara recalled the moment her father first said her soon-to-be husband's name. She felt her throat tighten. She knew the young man's parents were leaders in the church, but they'd never met. A month later, in 1995, she was standing in a church-owned stadium in Seoul, South Korea, to receive Moon's blessing. When her wedding day arrived, Kara remembers not knowing what to say to her fiancé as they held hands surrounded by 10,000 other couples. The men all dressed in the same black suit and the women wearing matching white wedding dresses. Kara describes music trumpeting as the Reverend Moon and his wife, Hak Jahan, dressed in gold crowns and flowing white robes, made their entrance. Moon spoke Korean during the ceremony. Kara didn't understand a word he was saying. Neither Gordon's nor Kara's marriage lasted. Both marriages ended just a few years after their blessing ceremony took place. Of course, not all parents wanted their children to be members of Moon's cult. Some went to great lengths to remove their children from the cult. There are many hundreds of reported cases of parents and family members kidnapping church members to attempt what is known as deprogramming. To free a Mooney from cult control, a deprogrammer attempts to reawaken connections to past relationships and help the cult member to begin to think for themselves again. Deprogramming was reported to have a success rate of about 95%. But sometimes the trauma of the deprogramming system, which often included kidnapping, would have the opposite intended effect and further instill the beliefs in the member. In almost every case, the church made attempts to reclaim their lost members. In fact, the cult successfully brought legal action against a few deprogrammers on the legal grounds that cult members were initially held against their will by their parents and deprogrammers. A man named Christopher Edwards shared the story of his deprogramming in his book, Crazy for God. Chris was lured into the cult in June of 1975 in Berkeley, California. Seven and a half months later, in January of 1976, he was kidnapped by a team of professionals while spending an afternoon with his father at Fisherman's Wharf. The kidnapping and deprogramming was masterminded by a man named Ted Patrick, a professional deprogrammer who was hired by Chris's father to pull him out of the cult. Two hours later, Chris found himself locked inside a darkened Holiday Inn hotel room in Richmond, California. His father told him that he was very sick, that he didn't realize what the Moonies had done to him. 
that Chris needed help and that these men were here to help him. Chris protested. He called the men hired thugs and professional kidnappers. He told his father he believed them all to be his enemies. Chris's father begged his son to cooperate. There were five men in the room with Chris that afternoon. The deprogrammers had also rented the room next door, and Chris could hear people coming and going as they talked. Chris sank back into his chair and silently chanted, Heavenly Father, save me from Satan, over and over. Another man quietly entered the room and locked the bolt. He crossed to Chris's father and said, Ted's ready. He'll be in in a minute. Chris's mind raced. He had been specifically warned by the true family about Ted Patrick. They called him Satan incarnate. He was described as a hulk of a man who beat people, chained them, stripped them, insulted the true father, and then brainwashed his victims until they no longer believed in the truth. The mere mention of Ted's name brought a rising panic inside Chris. He began chanting again and felt a little better. Chris heard two rapid knocks at the door. A pause, then one more knock. That was Ted. The door was opened, then bolted again, and a large man crossed the room to stand in front of Chris, who was frantically praying. Hello, Chris, the man said. My name's Ted Patrick. I've been looking forward to meeting you. Chris began chanting again, trying to drown out the voice of the man in front of him. Ted told Chris to loosen up. He just wanted to talk to him about his involvement in the Moonies. I'm not a Mooney, shouted Chris. Don't give me any of that, kid, said Ted. I've been following that guy Moon for a long time, watching the way he sets up front organizations and sucks people in. Ted told Chris that he brought a few friends to talk with him. Two young men were brought into the room. Chris remembered being scared out of his mind, utterly convinced he would be drugged and beaten by Ted's friends. One of the men looked familiar to Chris. Ted asked Chris if he remembered one of the young men he called John. John was one of the recruits at camp with Chris seven months ago. Ted revealed that he had deprogrammed John just two weeks earlier. Chris called John a traitor. John spoke softly, telling Chris he could believe whatever he wanted about him. All he wanted Chris to do was listen, that's all. He explained that he knew what Chris had been through because he had been there too, that they had both been horribly conned. He knew it would take time before Chris could see and accept that fact, just like it took him. Chris shouted back, you're not my friends, Satan is in you. Chris's father buried his face in his hands. This went on for hours. The men explained how Moon took quotes from the Bible out of context. Chris pretended to listen, silently chanting to himself. Ted and John explained that Chris needed to stop chanting and really listen to them, to start thinking for himself again. They explained the tactics and strategies used by the cult during the weekend workshops and showed Chris how the intensity had been turned up over the week-long version. They explained how lack of sleep and constant chanting kept Chris from thinking for himself, from seeing the truth of what had happened to him. One of the men brought in burgers and they stopped for dinner. As Chris ate, it occurred to him that no one in the room was trying to force him to change his beliefs. After dinner, Ted said it was time for bed. Ted apologized for telling Chris when to eat and sleep. That's what the cult did, he said but it was midnight and they were all tired. They'd start again at seven o'clock. His father slept right beside him and they had someone guarding the door at all times. This went on for three days in 1976. They talked about the mind control techniques used on cult members and how Chris was experiencing those effects. Chris found himself terrified whenever the deprogrammers seemed to know exactly what was going on in his mind. It seemed to him as if they were reading his thoughts. No, they told him, these were just the effects of the mind control. The Unification Church did everything in its power to prevent cult members from being successfully taken and deprogrammed. If a cult member knew or suspected they were being taken away, church leaders instructed members to attempt suicide by being run over by the car. Moonies were told that it is, quote, better to die faithful to true father than to be a living Judas. End quote. 
Moonies were instructed that if there was no chance for a car suicide, once the member was taken home, they should immediately go into the bathroom and slash their wrists. Chris eventually walked out of that hotel room and got into a car with his father, free from the mind control of the cult. But that wasn't the end of his interaction with the Unification Church. After returning home, Chris and his family received phone calls and letters every day from the cult. The church even sent people in vans to follow and harass them in an attempt to intimidate Chris and his family. It took a full year of therapy from a specialist in cult-related psychology to put an end to the chanting and singing that frequently invaded Chris's mind. The harassment only stopped when Chris began lecturing on American cults and his experience with the Moonies. Rose Johnson had a more mild experience with deprogramming in the late 1970s. Instead of being taken by professionals, her aunt and uncle took her out for lunch one day and never brought her back. After several days with her family, eating, sleeping, talking, and thinking normally again, she made a full recovery. All told, Rose was a member of the Unification Church for just five weeks. Although Rose escaped, her friend Tanya remained in the cult. Rose never saw her friend Tanya again. Currently, the Unification Church is split into two major groups, both of which claim to have the legitimacy and spiritual authority of Sun Myung Moon. The two most prominent groups are the Family Federation for World Peace and Unification, led by Moon's surviving wife, Hak Jahan Moon, and the Pennsylvania-based World Peace and Unification Sanctuary, founded and led by Moon's youngest son, Sean. Moon's wife, Hak Jahan, announced her own special messianic status after his passing in 2009. She later presided over a mass marriage for 3,500 couples in 2013 in Korea. Although the church and its businesses are still active around the globe today, due to ongoing divisions between family members, the future of the Unification Church is in turmoil. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, leave us a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter as at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. As always, thank you for listening. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Kenny Hobbs, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Cults is written by Ian Maddox and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. 